0: The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.
1: It's impossible to bullshit the city of Memphis. Even Beale Street, manufactured to create an illusion of the city's past, can't really be faked. The street still serves its essential function. To get lost in the thrum of a Memphis sound. Local historian Robert Gordon once wrote If aerial photographs could reveal energy the way infrared photographs reveal heat, Memphis would be surrounded by vectors pointing toward it. Gordon was writing about the countless musical figures that have made the city perhaps the most significant contributor to American music W.C. Handy, Elvis, Ann Peebles, Al Green, Cordell Jackson, Stax, High, Furry Lewis, Jim Dickinson, the list endless. These vectors have vibrated, continue to vibrate toward Memphis for other purposes, too. From music, to architecture, to politics, to planning, and beyond, Memphis has always been a place on the vanguard. It's striking, though, that a city as significant as a cultural and historic contributor as Memphis is, is oftentimes so bad about broadcasting its own place. Some of this is no doubt due to the fact that much of its history, especially in regards to race, is reprehensibly tragic. Some of this is no doubt due to the fact that many American cities, far from the coasts, have suffered an inferiority complex since the middle years of the 20th century, when the affect of regionalism was stamped out for a monoculture of sprawl and cars. Yes, there are monuments that address the city's past. The conversion of the Lorraine Motel into the National Civil Rights Museum, which should be a required visit for every American, is a proper acknowledgement of and reckoning with the past. The Stacks Museum rightly champions its place in Soulsville as the progenitor of a distinctly American music. There's the share of convention center pamphlet histories that every city and its boosters like to mine. The Piggly Wiggly, Holiday Inn, and Federal Expresses, whose innovations in commerce, travel, and logistics are stamped on the modern mind. But there are hidden histories embedded in the landscape of the city on every block. Some hide in plain view. A trail of tears marker, hard to pick out in the overgrown grass of the vacant lot in which it sits, is a drive-by detail in the high speeds of Danny Thomas. American Sound Studio, which defined the sound of a hit record in the late 1960s, is now a family dollar. Many people, including Josh Whitehead, Holly Whitfield, Preston Lauterbach, the folks behind the lynching sites project of Memphis, and others, are digging up these hidden histories to retell the city's story. This podcast enters into conversation with them all. But more so, it enters into conversation with the city itself, moving through its neighborhoods, holding up a mic, giving voice to its places and its people to listen. <laughs>
2: You would not let me be. I didn't last borough, would not let me be. Wouldn't rest content until I came to
1: Tennessee.
2: If you follow me, babe, I'll turn your money green. If you follow me, babe, I'll turn your money green. I'll show you more money Rockefeller ever seen. If the river was whiskey, baby, and I was a duck. If the river was whiskey, baby, and I was a duck. I doubt to the bottom, Lord, i never come up.
1: I'm standing in the middle of Health Sciences Park in Memphis's Medical District. This park was designed by the landscape architect, George Kessler, the same hand behind the city's parkway system. If I look to my west, there sits downtown and more immediately the Edge District where Sun Studio sits on the corner of Union and Marshall. The Scottish Rite Temple, its faux column facade topped by a Masonic Eagle, a vacant office depot and Southwest Tennessee Community College to the south. The University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center surrounds me. It's imposing Gothic buildings to the east, a more contemporary glass and metal-clad mid-rise to the west, a 70s era low-rise brutalist building to the north. This is not an empirically beautiful view, but if you let the picture develop with its layers of history surrounding it and jarring juxtapositions of aesthetics, it'll sink into you. I moved to Memphis about a year ago because of this view. I'm an Angelino who spent most of my life on the coasts or in bigger cities like Chicago. Memphis was a historical footnote, a gauzy sort of musical reference point that only became real after a visit here back in 2016. The city hooked me then, but with no expectation that I would one day live or work in it. I came back down to Memphis from New York in the early in the fall of 2019, and the wild architectural and urbanistic eclecticism of this view, the feeling that there was so much to learn about the depth of this cityscape, drew me in for keeps. Until relatively recently, Health Sciences Park was known as Forest Park, named after the Confederate Army General and the first Grand Wizard of the KKK, Nathan Bedford Forrest. He and his wife's bodies were interred here in the park as they still are, though the statue venerating Forrest was removed in 2017. The city of Memphis, thwarted in its efforts to remove it from the park by the State of Tennessee Historical Commission, sold the park to a private nonprofit that swiftly got rid of the statue. Though the statue is gone, its plinth remains, and a historical marker fronting Union Avenue, erected in 2004 by the sons of Confederate veterans celebrating for us, still stands. This past summer, during the protests after the murder of George Floyd, local activists painted Black Lives Matter around the pedestal where the statue once stood. Five days after its completion, the mural was vandalized with the phrase, kill them all. Walking north of Health Sciences Park on Manassas Street, over the dormant trolley tracks on Madison Avenue, layers of the city reveal themselves. It's easy to lose sight of Memphis's nuances and the concrete war of traffic. Slow down and there's the beige brick mid-century Baptist Student Center, looking like something a young pre-glass and steel Mies van der Rohe might have dreamt up. It's a jutting roofline adding a playful expression. A little down Court Avenue, I can make out the roof of the low-slung UTHSC police station, Where some sort of angular form emerging out of the building makes it look like a triangular spaceship has just landed. Surprising details are everywhere. I'm moving now towards the corner of Manassas and Jefferson. Here's the Lowenstein Mansion, an impressive Victorian era home of delicate brickwork, arch windows, terracotta, and stained glass detailing. The home is an appropriate welcome to the aptly named Victorian village, where a smattering of stately homes from the late 19th century remain. Its historic fabric poked with holes of shabby apartment complexes. The character of the area changes again, crossing Poplar Avenue. In view are mid-rise apartment buildings that would look at home in Eastern Europe, fast food establishments and desire lines cutting through vacant lots, a hospital, a blood bank, the ornate St. Mary's Episcopal Church, where the history of the city's yellow fever epidemic of 1878 is inscribed within its walls. There's Morris Park, an all around seas of parking lots. North of Poplar, homes and vacancy delicately dance with each other. It's here in what's now the parking lot of Lake Grove Baptist Church that the bluesman Furry Lewis once lived.
2: Mr. Case said before he died there was one more road he would like to ride.
1: So who was Furry Lewis? Furry Lewis was born Walter E. Lewis sometime in 1893 or maybe 1899. Furry was born in the Mississippi Delta. His family moved to Memphis where at an early age he was exposed to, as the Smithsonian puts it, an era in which ragtime and the first incarnations of jazz met the folk songs of Appalachia and the spiritual and work-song vocal traditions of former slaves. These influences allowed Lewis to craft his own sounds at local functions, gain popularity, and travel around the South as a musician. He cut his first sides in Chicago in 1927, cut more down home in Memphis in 1928 and 29. Music wasn't long for Furry, though. The Great Depression was hard on him. In the early 30s, he became employed as a street sweeper for the city of Memphis. No easy task given his wooden leg, a leg he lost on a failed train hop back in 1917, to sweep the street, Beale, where he had made his mark. After an absence of about 20 years, a record producer named Samuel Charters helped reignite his career. Furrier spent the 1960s and 70s touring, recording, releasing two full-length albums, and leaving an indelible legacy on Memphis and beyond. Furry lived in a house at 811 Mosby, just north of Poplar through the 1970s. The home at 811 Mosby had an open-door policy, in which a generation of emerging Memphis musicians often visited and were influenced by his musicianship, storytelling, and presence. The blues musician Booker White lived next door. Before the home burnt down in 1981, and Furry would pass from pneumonia shortly thereafter, he was in the spotlight, both as a living link to the past as well as still a voice to be heard.
2: Furry just is so much a part of the fabric of my family in growing up that it is I he's always there and
1: around. That's Steve Selvage speaking. Steve's a local musician, guitarist in the band The Hold Steady, frontman of the Steve Selvage band, and evolved in numerous other projects. He's the son of Memphis musical legend Sid Selvage. The friendship of Sid and Furry through the 60s and 70s is one of the great Memphis musical love stories. A story told in detail on another OAM Network podcast, Memphis Musicology, in an episode titled Furry and Sid. For a deep dive into their relationship and more about Furry's life, check that episode out. But I wanted to hear directly from Steve about his experiences with Furry and his home, and Furry's influence on his family, his music, and beyond.
2: I remember definitely, even though I was very small, like picking up on the fact that this is somebody who's very important to my dad. It was sort of with with great importance and not ceremony, but it was like, we weren't just going to somebody's house because, you know, we were always kind of being drug along somewhere, tagging along somewhere, you know, you know, a horseshoe to Baker's place, uh, Lee Baker's place, or, you know, a birthday party at Jim Dickinson's house or, you know, just the people he grew up with. But this was different. And I remember just like sort of the smell of it and the, you know, it was just feeling like sort of an old place. You know and it was just very sort of contained and and I, I remember it sort of moving not moving slow but there was a certain vibe to it but yeah and i remember like there was sort of this kind of rolling cadre of, of women that would come and take care of them you know and they're all really sweet super sweet to me um um but yeah but again like I could tell. Just the look on my dad's face, I remember, it was just like you could tell he how much he loved this guy and like how how important he was to him, you know, and how generous furry was with his gifts, um, you know, uh, just musically and, and every everything else, you know. <clears throat> a lot of times he'd call up and just you know ask for us to bring over some some cabbage for his gerbils. Uh, the furry and dad's relationship was it was a really really you know, a really kind and, re, and really sort of uh, you know open kind of thing where they they you know he learned from furry like I said musically, but just they 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 shared a lot of just sort of good sort of uh, times together. You know, and 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 so I think that informed him. You know, in terms of whatever he might have imparted to me, just in terms of being a decent person,
1: Steve could share a million family stories of furry. Like the one he told me when he was four or five and grabbed Furry's pistol, held it like a Looney Tunes character in Furry's direction, till his dad calmly coaxed it away from him, and they all just calmly brushed the incident aside. Or how his dad and Lee Baker were joking around, writing a song with Furry at the hospital, soon before Furry passed away. And Furry's musical influence was just as strong as his personal impact. Furry's style of guitar playing, I think is very hard to characterize. Uh, you know, it certainly fits into a blues idiom, but it's a lot more expansive. It's like kind of a freer yeah. than that.
2: Very, yeah, especially, you know, I, I feel like there's different era. There's sort of, there are different eras. you know, of, of, you know, like obviously things got incredibly free as he got older, you know. Um, but yeah, no, there was an elasticity to what he did. Yeah. And and you know and, and that's that's not uncommon in country blues. I mean, there's a lot of you know, you know ad- additional bars, you know, you know, musically not, you know, like an, an added amount of time in a, in a phrase or whatever. But Furry really, I think, I think he was one of the most lyrical players of his generation, and under that idiot, you know. I mean, some, like, sometimes like voice and guitar, like don't know where one starts and one stops. And, you know, and and that was, I think that had a big impact on my dad's phrasing as a singer, you know? And I think there's a through line there. You know, it occurred to me, my dad was, you know, was such a powerful singer and that was like such as his main instrument, you know? And uh, it, it, it occurred to me that while certainly his singing has influenced my singing for sure, but his singing also influenced my guitar playing, his phrasing, and his no choice, I think definitely had an impact on the how I play. you know, and then a lot of that there's there's DNA of furry in that as well.
0: He has an amazing impact. I don't like the his brand of guitar playing really lent to rock and roll. And so you don't really see that connection. And um, again, a lot of people have been able to isolate blues into this into this solitary um, deal, where it shouldn't be. He he has influenced so many people. It's from soul to everything else that came from blues. And he was one of the people, of course, that got to enjoy you know success later on in life. Um, in a sense, you know, as far as people being able to recognize him, I definitely think he he's on a long list of people, along with, you know, another artist by the name of Johnny Ace, um, who does not get their, You know, the the proper flowers that they did for really kicking down the doors that they did. And so Ferry Lewis is just definitely, you know, one on the list of so many, but one of the top ones on that list, again, that deserve every single accolade, every single acknowledgement that the city could possibly offer because without him and his contributions and his music, the foundation, we wouldn't have had such a solid foundation to build up on. So technically it's through his sacrifice that we are able to call ourselves a music city in a sense and say that we are the home of the blues.
1: That's Tanya Dyson. Tanya is the wearer of many hats, She's an educator, an entrepreneur, a singer-songwriter, and the executive director of the Memphis Slim Collaboratory.
0: I always say we are on the precipice or the um, the intersection, of, in a sense, of preservation and the future. Um, and so what I say about that, because it's named after, you know, Memphis Slim, a.k.a. Well, Peter Chapman, a.k.a. Memphis Slim, an amazing blues artist, who I also feel like does not get enough accolades that he should, because... Prior to all of the record labels that we pushed, prior to all of the artists that we pushed, we had people like Furry Lewis and uh, Memphis Slim, Memphis Mini, so many others that were championing um, for the blues and really laid a solid foundation for all of these other genres to spring forth from
1: that. The Slim Collaboratory translates the life lessons and legacy of Memphis Slim, embracing the spirit of how he made music his livelihood, his way, to establish the foundation for the next generation of Soulsville musicians and artists.
0: So, we have a recording studio, we have a rehearsal space, um, we also have a resource center upstairs where they can get information um, and they can really sit down and become a business. So, it's the space outside of the rehearsal space for them to sit down and fill out their forms, um, fill out their songwriter sheets, you know, write and work on building themselves. And then we provide workshops and seminars to help support them with that knowledge, the proper knowledge that they need, again, to become that business that they need to.
1: By translating the legacy of Memphis Slim into a place for community collaboration, not to mention rescuing a neighborhood structure, Slim's old house, from falling further into disrepair, the Slim Collaboratory is an example of the type of physical and social infrastructure needed to support artists, build a sense of value and worth for people in their communities, and remix history into an active agent that formally ties together the city's past, with the promise, not to mention drive the economic potential of the city's future.
0: If people are coming here because of this music legacy, if they're coming here for tourism and they're staying in these wonderful, you know. Um, music-based hotels, and they're getting, you know, move, you know, shuttle, you know, shuffled around the city to see this museum and this museum and this monument and this type of thing. Then, of course, we do need an office to regulate that and to look at how to pre- um, the preservation of that legacy. Because in fifty years from now, um, Memphis is going to be hard pressed, and you, you, you're going to see a lot of the Elvis fans are eventually going to pass away. Who do we have to? you know, drive people to bring people to Memphis. You know, we still have to explore the legacy of, you know, Isaac Hayes and Al Green. I think there's still a lot more that we can explore with that as far as tourism and honoring those two giants in the soul music um, genre, you know, in a little bit more than what the city does. But even after that, again, in 50 years, who are the next people that people are going to want to see? Who are those artists that are in Memphis now that are, that are building on this amazing legacy that we've had previously through Stacks and Sun and High Records and all these other labels? Who are the artists that we're going to see now? So figuring out a way to economically support those artists, their ventures, and then supporting a viable industry that, that helps to support those artists as well. So looking at the labels, looking at the venues, looking at, the um, production companies, looking at the booking agents, what industry do we have around there, and how? Um, what type of sustainability are we building for those um, businesses to thrive? And of course, we have the talent. Memphis, practically, you know, it, they say it all the time. I hear it all the time. It grows in the, you know, it comes. It's in the water. It, it grows out of the ground. It's somewhere in the dirt, some type of way. It's just people are born talented. But again, what type of infrastructure are we building to support that and maintain um, sustainability for it?
1: Could a larger network of slim houses help build that sustainability? Already, slim house-like projects are emerging across the country. What would it look like in a city, to paraphrase Tanya, whose soil grows talent, with so many cultural heavyweights still owed their due, still with lessons to be imparted, and with no lack of need for places that offer space for cultural communion to dig deeper into that soil? What would it look like, what would it mean, if there was a house for furry where none exists now? It's impossible to rewrite history. History simply happens. But it is possible that the history we know, the history we understand as the story of the past, isn't actually the story. Towards the end of our conversation, Steve Selvich, reflecting on Memphis's destiny of geography and demography, said to me that Memphis is a place of collision. Rock and roll is a collision. The beat of Memphis is a collision. History is a collision too, of facts, of narratives, of what gets elevated and what gets lost. Taking down a statue or a flag doesn't erase history, nor does erecting a new statue or a plaque. These acts cannot change the fact that what has transpired in the past lives on in the present in myriad ways, through legacy, through policy, through people. It's almost trite to say that history is living, or to use an overused yet pretty spot-on phrase from a writer just from a little south of Memphis, the past is never dead, it's not even past. If we look at history as an expression of cultural values at any given time though, we're able to continually contextualize and recontextualize history so that it tells a fuller story, gives more voice to those whose voices have been left off of the recording and better reflects who we want or aspire to be. It can be a way for a place to better understand itself and its evolution, to grow from its history and embrace itself. This city made Furry Lewis. Furry Lewis made Memphis too, somewhere he should be recognized. Drown in History is hosted by me, Ben Schulman. Special thanks goes to Steve Selvage and Tanya Dyson for leading me through this journey with Furry, Mariko Krauss for assistance with research, Gilworth and the OAM Network team, and of course, to Furry Lewis himself. Drown in History is a just place podcast, a production of the OAM Network. More soon will come soon.
0: The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.